This is an AMI podcast. I'm Kelly McDonald. I'm Ramia Amadin, and this is Kelly and Ramia. Live from the Accessible Media Studios, this is Kelly and Ramya. Entertainment, lifestyle, and great conversation. It's AMI's on-air community, and everyone's invited. We're back with you again. This is The Daily Show, Kelly and Ramya, and we're here on AMI. Thanks for joining us. Uh, Right now, it's myself, and we've swapped Kelly out for Grant Hardy, because Grant Hardy's going to be here the first hour with me. We're going to take you through all this content together. Hey, Grant. Hey, Ramya. How's it going? Good. So you said you had, what, 19 cups of coffee, and you forgot (laughs) to have the 20th, or what was it? Uh, Yeah, somewhere around there, you know. (laughs) The consensus is we all we all feel a little bit of an exaggeration, but Mm. uh, need that just to be somewhat normal. I don't know. I've heard (laughs) you use the number fifty before for cups of coffee as well, so maybe this is closer to the truth with the (laughs) twenty. There you go. Somewhere between twenty and fifty. Exactly. Exactly. Hey, so last night I uh, was attending the Amazon Alexa accessibility event. Don't quote me on that being the actual title of the event, but it was a nice evening at the. Um, a Toronto venue, oh, Massey Hall, thank you. I That was my brain that I was thinking. Massey Hall, it was really interesting. There was a lot of great features for the uh, Echo Show devices that were showcased and demoed. There was some great panel discussions as well and a keynote, uh, lots of just interesting well, interest and engagement all around at the event about accessibility, about what people at Amazon are doing to make accessibility more prevalent in their uh, devices. So I wanted to ask you, not specifically mm-hmm. about Echo, but about smart homes. Uh, there was just, you know, so much of that talk last night, and obviously accessibility and for people with disabilities, this conversation is widespread. Smart homes, yay or nay for you, Grant? Oh, uh, I am absolutely excited about the smart home because I just think it has so much potential, especially for everybody really, but especially for people in the accessibility community. I know I personally, I actually don't have enough uh, light sensitivity to know when the lights are on. Mm -hmm. And I get all kinds of like neighbors text me like, yo, you left your lights on for like two days when you left home. The idea that I can, yeah, (laughs) the idea that I can just set up, listen, when I leave home, do this, turn the lights off, whatever, is incredible. And I love that companies have recognized that they should be embracing accessibility. How about you? Uh, I've been to blind people's homes where all their lights are turned off. And I'm like, you're freaking people (laughs) out. Nobody wants to come in thinking that you're trying to trap us in here with your dark house. Mm. But uh, yeah, no, I'm also into it. The stuff is already out there, but I'm just, I don't know if I'm lazy or hesitant, but definitely don't have anything other than just smart speakers. I have Echoes, I have uh, Google. At one point, I had the HomePod as well, but I've never delved into just smart switches or thermostat. I can't really, I live in a rental unit, I guess. But uh, smart switches for your lights and all this other stuff um, is something that I could have in my home right now. But maybe I'm thinking of it kind of as an all or nothing scenario where like I want my whole house decked out or I'll just stick to no smart devices. Have you delved into any of it? Like the smart plugs? 
Uh, I do have some smart plugs. Nice. Uh, I did bite the bullet a few years and I uh, was able to get a couple smart thermostats uh, installed. Haven't really figured out the light situation. And I agree with you that you can get into this situation where it's like so complicated. It's like, how the heck do you turn, you know, turn on the lights now, whatever. Mm. Why are the lights smart, but the thermostat isn't, whatever. But you don't have to go all into it, all, all or nothing. Uh, and the stuff that I have been able to install, it's it's just great like the accessibility of it it's it's really fun how it mm -hmm. all works together the other part of it is to commitment like do we have to commit to apple or amazon or google or can they all play with each other a little anyway thanks to think about let's move to what's coming up on today's show grant got some fun things planned including how we can take our meals from bland to bold mary mamaliti of kitchen confession is going to tell us all about that Laura Bain, friend of AMI, joins us to discuss education for blind and partially sighted youths in Nova Scotia and some recent changes in the way services are being delivered. Plus, we have our weekly roundtable. Kelly McDonald will be back for that, and he's got uh, to deal with myself and our guest, Karen McGee, our content development specialist in Morrisburg, Ontario, later on with his topics. Okay, let's see if we can get through this. Canadian director Sean Levy is singing the praises of newcomer Aria Nalobi, uh, who plays one of the lead characters in the screen adaptation of the best-selling novel All the Light We Cannot See. Levy says even though it's her first acting role, she quickly caught up with the rest of the cast. It's pretty amazing to work with an actor who is telling you up front they're not fragile, they want candor, and they're aspiring to the same thing you are, which is excellence. So we just, we, we understood each other early on in that perfectionism, which we share. Uh, fantastic, obviously, for just casting, representation, uh, the actual premise of the show slash book. And this limited Netflix series is available today. Also, it revolves, like, if you're wondering about this book, it's got a huge reputation behind it uh, and great rap. But if you're wondering about what it is, it revolves around a character, uh, Marie Leblanc. I might have missed a word there in her name. Uh, a blind French girl who takes refuge in her uncle's house in St. Malou after Paris is in invaded by Nazi Germany, and Warner Fennick, the bright German boy who's accepted into a military school because of his skills in radio technology. Great book. I haven't read it yet. Have you? I haven't. It's been on my list for a long time, but it, it, definitely now I think I'm going to take another look at that. Right? Or just go really straight cool. to the Netflix um, adaptation. <laughs> With great like audio description, easier. I find. Yeah, yeah, exactly. All right, we're going to take a break. We're going to come back together, Grant and I, and talk to Mike Fair. He's going to get us gaming with a very timely release from Choice of Games called Ghost Simulator. So if you're into that, stick around after the break. Don't miss a minute. Kelly and Ramya will be right back. We're continuing the show here. It's Kelly and Ramya on AMI, and we're glad to have you here. I'm sticking around for the whole show. I'm Ramya, and Grant Hardy is here for the first hour with me, and then we'll swap out. I know, did I sound a little hesitant? Like, well, maybe. Maybe I'll be here. Grant Hardy's here with us. <laughs> I'm like, what? What did I do? <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. No, no. Always no. great to be with you guys. It's a lot of fun, and we're going to continue with that as we talk a little audio entertainment with Mike Fair.
Audio entertainment and accessible technology are increasingly important in our lives. I'm Mike Fair, here to help you make the most out of your devices. We'll share tech tips and product reviews. Plus, I'll steer you towards the best accessible games, audio dramas, and podcasts. We'll talk about it all here on Kelly and Ramya. Mike, the spooking never ends. Well, it's only two days after Halloween anyway, so we'll t- continue talking about these things. Uh, if you've ever wanted to haunt a house, you're in luck this year because, Mike, you're here to talk about a timely release from Choice of Games called Ghost Simulator. So what difference does it make that this is uh, from the hosted games section of Basically the site? Host- Hosted Games is uh, sort of the knockoff brand. So you have the main brand, and the, uh, which is Choice of Games, and they're, desi- they're written by uh, uh, people in the company, right? So the company has them on staff, but uh, they also allow other people to use their system, the Choice Script system. And so th- these games on the Hosted Games section and in the Hosted Games app are written by independent authors who get uh, you know, a share of the sales uh, for their creations, so they make deals with uh, choice of games, and then their games are hosted up there. And so the quality can vary kind of widely, but there's a lot of good gems out there. Uh, last year, we did one uh, all about a, a zombie outbreak that was uh, Zombie Haven, really excellent stuff. And this year as well, uh, we seem to have lucked into another gem. Speaking of choice, how much choice is there throughout this game? Well, it's basically these games are uh, a three-card trick, kind of, because they they are uh, basically based on choose-your-own-adventure books. Uh, So you get a range of choices, and there's stats and variables, which keep track of items you've found or not found, things that how uh, much the family might be terrified or believe in ghosts uh, because of your activities. Things like that are all kept track of numerically, and it will influence the choices that you get offered and what you're actually able to do. So it's the choices are more uh, than I expected. I really, I didn't expect it to go so broadly. It's a lot to keep track of. Uh, and uh, so you get, uh, basically you get different events, the same events every time you play the game, but you approach them with different choices and, and like different powers, possibly uh, things like that. So mm. more, more than I expected with choices. Okay, so it's like a multiple choice presentation, I guess. And yeah, you talked about some of these choices in context of a story. So what's the story of Ghost Simulator? So basically, Samantha Brooks is a best-selling horror writer, and uh, she wants inspiration. So she gets uh, this haunted house and moves her family in, hoping to find you know some inspiration in this big gothic mansion in the U.S., and a couple of teens are up in the attic exploring, uh, and they and you suddenly find yourself conscious as these teens are poking around where you are. And uh, you can choose uh, different ghostly powers from a range of them, uh, everything from dreams, uh, invasion of dreams, to poltergeist, moving objects around, things like that. Uh, apparition, you can appear before people, you can whisper uh, so that they can hear. There are a bunch of these powers. You can pick three of them. And basically, you take those three and you try your best to uh, see what you want to do. You're trying to unravel your past. You're just a a awakened spirit, and you're trying to figure out, you have no memory of who you are, why you died, and you want to know, right? So uh, you can even set the objective, like whether you want to leave eventually, leave the house, 
or whether you want to scare the family out of the house because if this family has moved into the house uh, and you can decide how to uh, react to them. So you kind of go through their uh, event adventure in this house and you can sort of choose uh, how what kind of ghost you want to be. I mean, I feel like I would at least want the option in the game, if I want to leave this house eventually, mm. at least give me that option, right? Uh, can you t maybe delve, in, tell us a little bit more about the family in the game? Yeah, so Samantha Brooks is a famous horror writer, desperate for inspiration for her next novel. She's struggling. Uh, you know, uh, Mike is the husband. Michael Brooks is a doctor. Both of them are kind of struggling with married life. The wife, uh, Samantha, is really obsessed, uh, desperate to, to, you know, for her next big success in writing. So absent from the family, and that's uh, leading to troubles there. And uh, uh, the doctor, uh, Michael, the husband, is haunted by a tragedy in his past as well mm -hmm. as marital struggles. So he's, you know, there's a lot going on there. Holly, Ollie and Amber are two teens, basically, and uh, they are kind of have the modern teenage problems and angst and, and trying to figure out who they are, uh, facing temptations and various interests. Amber's, Amber's very thoughtful and uh, likes to write like Shakespeare. Uh, Ollie is kind of more typical teenage boy, uh, in love uh, with, with a, a lady who you get to meet as well, and uh, t prone to taking risks. You know, wants to, you know, in a quest for popularity with his friends, he's willing to sort of engage in some risky behavior. So mm. there's that as well. Oh. So lots going on there. Lots for you to work with as a ghost. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Yeah, lots of different personalities and um, I guess holes in history and background, right? Which always makes for interesting story filling and storytelling. How about your impressions, Mike? So you filled us in on the game. Uh, so far, how are you liking the choices? You know, you get more options than I would have thought. Uh, I, I went in with, a, with somewhat lower expectations because it takes effort to put the amount of variables and things uh, every, anytime you add an element, you risk breaking other things, right? So it takes effort to do this. It is more here than I would have expected. And the choices tend to make sense. You know, I, I haven't felt particularly cramped. Uh, you know, usually there are options that I would have thought of uh, or pick or wanted to pick, right? So that's kind of nice to see. And a good range, always a, a good, nice range of, you know, four or five options between you know being nasty being nice or somewhere in between uh or leaving a situation without doing all the choices like you have more uh than a lot of these games give you so i was quite pleased with that yeah i'm wondering given the the breadth of choices that there seem to be in this game it seems like the kind of thing where you could play uh very many times and never sort of run out of ideas it, is that true how large is this game would you say so this game is basically a total of about 300,000 words. So that's about equivalent of a large novel. Uh, it's uh, basically you play through, uh, you probably get about a, a short story, maybe a novella's worth for each playthrough. So you could easily play this through four or five times, making different choices, uh, choosing you know different options. Uh, you do eventually, you'd run out of of choice meaningful choices that are different right but because you're always encountering the same series of events of main events in the story so you know there's there's room for replay uh you know it, it has that much depth to it 
uh, and and uh, but you know there is a, a ultimately a limitation in that space. So you're probably mm-hmm. going to get a you know a good you know I would say ten hours easily of uh, of entertainment from this. Ten hours in one gameplay. A uh, ten hours, you know, probably all maybe twelve to fifteen all through. You, you you're okay. probably going to take maybe an, a couple of hours for a, a, at most for a playthrough. Yeah. Yeah. The way that you described it, like word count of the game, is that a typical way of measuring, um, uh, what do you even call these, like adventure games and story games? Yeah, it's it's a commonly given metric, you know, oh. and, and it's an easier thing to total the number of words than it is to total the number of choices. Yeah. So I think that's why they lean on that. But you typically will see the length of words on the descriptions of these games. So you get at least some idea, ballpark of, how you know meaty they are how mm-hmm. how likely it is that they'll be very you know branching extensive you know long to play through right yeah. so it's it's a good basic metric yeah that's interesting i never thought of it that way but it makes a lot of sense when you explain it also um replayability is always an interesting thing to touch on because yes Technically, you can replay these kinds of games, but I wonder how many of us really are getting the gist of where things can go. It's kind of like predicting movies um, and or storylines of movies and books, right? You're potentially predicting how things can go if you make other choices while you're playing, especially if you're uh, the type of person to pick up things like this. So even though you can potentially replay once, twice, three times more, it's- would you do it? Yeah, there are some cases where I like I I'm d- not too uh, into being a totally nasty ghost, so I'm, I'm le- less likely to go far down that path. And and there's probably an extreme, you know, depth of of you know despicableness that you could reach if you wanted to, right? Uh, haunting this family. So you know, the, it's it's yeah. It's what kind of person? What kind of ghost do you want to be? What kind of experience do you want to have mm. with this stuff? And that will limit the replay somewhat exactly uh, yeah okay uh, oh, sorry go ahead no, go ahead okay i wanted to ask who would you recommend the game to mike so anyone who is into light fun horror you know that that and and a bit of thoughtfulness like really this is is kind of a good you get lots of laughs there are fun incidents when the ghost is trying to figure out modern technology and things like that doesn't always understand all our modern conveniences and things so there's some laughs there are some serious moments. It really does qu- make you question, you know, what makes identity, what makes you the person you are. Uh, it's it's when you're playing this game, you, you kind of can't help but think of these things. So it, there's thoughtfulness there in amid all the fun and the horror and the, you know, the, the scary thoughts, right? There's, there's uh, kind, of, kind of more substance there as well. I really dig these adventure games and I love like the text adventure games. I think I'd really enjoy a choose your own adventure as well. But why do you think people are so intrigued and why there are so many horror themed adventure games? I guess it's because, you know, they really lend themselves. Horror is a genre that, that really is about choices at its core and the consequence of making choices with incomplete information of being haunted by one's choices, uh, by regrets of one's actions. Right. So there's, it's an easy thing for, if you're looking to generate moments of meaningful choice, horror offers an easier place to start with already the stakes being engaged, right. That the, the player, is is pulled in so it's it's a good easy place to start uh in in building the tension building the that that you you kind of find yourself caring 
even before you really know the characters mm. very well. You're sort of drawn in quickly to a horror game. It is very enticing, that's for sure. Um, how can we access these games? Are they everywhere? Yeah, they're basically, you can get them on uh, the choiceofgames.com website and play them that way. You can also get them in the hosted games and choice of games apps. They're very accessible, and I believe they're Android and iOS. And uh, you can basically buy, you, the apps are free, but you buy the games individually. So this costs six ninety nine, and uh, you can just buy it. Uh, you can try it for free, uh, a couple of chapters. And that's true for all of these uh, choice of games. You basically get to try some of them for free and then decide, do I want to invest in the rest? So uh, that you know, it's it's not like you have to jump in without knowing anything about what you're paying for. So, pretty good system, very accessible with voiceover and presumably talkback. I I can't I don't have an Android device, so I can't try that. But uh, from what I've heard, uh, it is. So uh, yeah, it, it's uh, there's lots of fun to be had in in the system. Ultimately, was this worth the price? I would say yes. You know, I've enjoyed it much more than I expected to. This really uh, was uh, rated. It was released October fifth. It was rated over seven hundred and thirty times now, and it's come up with a rating of four point seven out of five. So people have enjoyed this, and uh, you know, it's it's a lot of effort. You know, writing a game like this, keeping everything balanced, putting in all these choices, and making sure none of them break something mm. else in terms of reasonability. There's there's lots of effort into this. So I would say yes. It's Easily worth six ninety nine uh, for for that effort. Yeah, uh, you know, lots of lots of fun to be have to be had in a game like this. Well, Mike. Well, we love that you feature games along with other audio entertainment uh, options. So thank you very much, and we'll chat with you next week. All righty, we'll see you then. Okay, as Mike said, you can find Ghost Simulator and other choice based games on the Choice of Games website. That's Choice of Games or you can go to the hosted games app and find things there. Mike and Tech. And in the meantime, after the break, we're checking in with Fern Lullum from the UK. And we're talking about the difference between fear and anxiety. Lots to think about around the psychology of fear. We'll be back with that conversation on Kelly and Ramia. Stick around and learn something new. Kelly and Ramya return with more in a moment. Kelly and Ramia on AMI. Thanks for hanging out with us, being back. And we're here for two hours. Lots of different conversations coming your way. We already had a couple of them, including gaming with Mike Fair. And uh, I'd love to say that I'm going to go check out this game. But honestly, when uh, October 31st passes, like that part of me that wants to get involved in the horror stuff, Grant, is also kind of over. How about for you? Yeah, that's fair. That's absolutely fair. I'm, I'm already kind of in my like i don't know normal fall mode i feel like the halloween yeah. spirit has passed especially if all the candy and chocolate you accumulated is done also it's like now nah, why bother time to go to the store and get the stuff that's on discount <laughs> exactly uh ramia it is time for our uh time to welcome back fern lalam from the uk for our bi-weekly check-in What's on your mind? I'm Fern Lullum from the UK, and whether serious, silly, or somewhere in between, I've got you covered. Let's face it, the most effective therapy is a chat with your bestie. Hi. 
Hi, Fern. Welcome back to the show. And we've got a really cool topic today. We're talking about fear. Yes, we are. Thank you very much, Grant. So we are talking about fear today because it was Halloween this week, right? So I thought, Mm -hmm. why not get our hearts racing uh, and tackle this spooky subject of fear? Because isn't it amazing how much sometimes fear can hold us back. It's actually scary to think that sometimes we do ourselves down just because we're afraid to put ourselves out there. So I thought, let's talk about it today. No, it's so true. Like just thinking back to my life, all the stuff that, you know, all those regrets that I had, it's where I've had that, that feeling, which I can't really define. And that's what I'm going to ask you next, gnawing away at me that I think is fear. So let's just start with that. I feel like we've all kind of experienced it, but how would you define fear and how can we spot it in ourselves or others? Yes, perfect segue. Nice one, Grant. Um, So fear is an emotional response and it is triggered by a perceived threat or danger or an anticipation of harm. Something harmful is coming and we are afraid of it. So it can manifest itself in various ways and in various different levels of intensity. You know, sometimes it's really bad, sometimes it's not so bad, we can handle it. But um, it can often lead to us sort of having changes in our thoughts, in our behavior, in how we feel in our body. You know, that, like I mentioned, the heart starts racing, the sweaty palms, all of that. And you can really start feeling that fear coming on. So it's that thought of something is coming and it's going to potentially be bad for me, essentially. Mm, yeah, exactly. It's, it's so weird, right? Because we're literally in these bodies that were designed for like fight or flight within 10 seconds or whatever. And it's not appropriate anymore to do that, but it's it's just basically the way mm-hmm. we're built. Oh, and speaking of yeah. bodies, I think we'll get into that with you, Fern, like just the physicality <clears throat> of fear and how it manifests itself physically. But what are the different types of fear? Yeah, there are a lot of different types of fear. So as you can imagine, if somebody's got a phobia, which is obviously one type of fear, you know, you're you're afraid of a specific item or, you know, something in the world that you don't like. So for me, I'm just going to come clean and say it. I have always had a fear of balloons, which sounds ridiculous, doesn't it? I mean, they can't hurt me, but they they always do have the threat of popping, and that scares me. Mm. So uh, I've always been afraid of balloons. But that can be very different, having a phobia, to having sort of like fear of, I don't know, maybe something like social anxiety, which, you know, kind of classifies Mm. itself as fear of social situations. And it can often come along with embarrassment or hesitation or kind of humiliation, the fear of I'm going to do something, I'm going to be made to look stupid here. Um, Another kind of fear is panic disorder. So this can come on very quickly. And again, it can be very, very intense where it could, you know, and all of those physical symptoms can kind of come up. So the rapid heart rate, the sweating, the shortness of breath, all of those things that we think about where our body just kind of sort of contorts and, and crunches in on itself and goes, oh God, we've got, you know, that kind of fight or flight instinct that you were mentioning um, there, Grant. And then the, the last type of fear that I'll mention, because I think it's one that quite a lot of us have, is this internal fear and that one it's kind of like when we have a very harsh inner critic and we've got this voice in our head going you're not good enough you're going to fail you're not going to be you know all the things that you want to be you're never going to reach your dreams and we can be actually really afraid of ourselves which is crazy and that's kind of what we were talking about at the beginning when we said we can hold ourselves back just for fear of of what we're going to be able to do or not be able to do yeah it can really be 
very devastating, I guess is the appropriate word. Mm. But um, you mentioned those anxious moments a little bit. What would you say is the difference mm-hmm. between fear and anxiety? Uh, brilliant question. The two do overlap quite a lot because anyone who's listening to this and I've just been going through some of these symptoms will think, well, that I thought that was anxiety, right? Because those are all the symptoms that you get when you have anxiety. The main difference between fear and anxiety is fear essentially is a response to something that is immediate, is known, or is specific. So it's something that is going to happen now in the present moment or very soon we know what it is there's a you know you can pinpoint it this is the thing that i'm afraid of and it's very specific whereas anxiety tends to be more kind of long-standing it can be kind of like a future perceived threat that might come you know what all the what ifs and the oh god what what if this happens what if that happens we don't know exactly what it is Mm. but it's a more kind of persistent fear that just stays with us so fear is more kind of like it's happening now anxiety is more a kind of oh god you know it's kind of the, the imagination in our minds it's not so specific and it's not kind of like a danger that is going to happen immediately it's going to happen at some point in the future and fern even as you're describing the differences or exactly what each of these things can feel like i've i can relate and it rings true uh, that this would affect our decision-making processes, our uh, actions, all kinds of things. So can we walk through that? Yes. And it does have a huge impact on, you know, on our thoughts, on our feelings, on our behavior. So it involves um, a lot of different, different parts. Like I said, one of them is that you can become kind of risk averse. And you kind of step into this, I need control over everything. Because if I can control my environment, then I don't have to be so afraid because I'm not so vulnerable, perhaps. So we start doing things to to attempt to control the uncontrollable because, of course, we can never control everything. But we, we try. We try our best. Another way is that it can impair our judgment. So we might start making very irrational decisions. We might sort of think about things and because we're scared we're we're making snap judgments they're not the best judgments but we're just doing it because we you know we can't think straight essentially another big thing and again this kind of overlaps between anxiety and fear is avoidance behavior we'll just stop doing things we'll do things um we, you know we'll sort of say i'm not going to do that because it might be scared you know i won't go to that party because i might make a fool of myself or i won't put myself over for that job because i might look silly and they might laugh me out of the office so we hold ourselves back in that way um and finally we can become quite hyper vigilant so that's the thing of you know someone can make you jump just you know just by sort of walking into the room because you're just waiting you know your body is on high alert for any kind of threat and so when, as you can imagine, when we're in any of these situations and we feel like this, it can be very uncomfortable and we certainly can't really be ourselves because we're almost chained to this fear that's controlling us. It's almost, dare I say it, a relief to know that like some of these experiences are very universal and, uh, you know, yeah. you or I are not the only ones to have experienced it, that's for sure. Um just curious yeah just curious but when we're talking about fear as it relates to 
disability. Does that affect us a little more, a little differently? How are those two related? I think there's a lot of fear around disability, both as somebody who has a disability and from a non-disabled person's point of view. I think there's a lot of fear in terms of there's um, a lot of misconceptions around disability. There's a, a fear of kind of like, what would that be like for somebody who doesn't have a disability? I can't imagine what that would be like. And they can have expectations that maybe aren't true and can make them fear the disability more. I think a big fear around disability is I'm going to say the wrong thing. I'm going to get it wrong. And that's why often people don't approach people with disabilities because they have this fear of, oh, God, I'm going to make a fool of myself. And then in terms of somebody who has a disability, there's a lot of stigma. Like we say, there are those misconceptions. There's kind of a fear of being dependent on others or limiting your, you know, you won't be able to do as much. Maybe I'll never get what I want because I've got a disability. And there's a big fear of inclusion. You know, maybe I'll be mm. left out. Maybe I won't be able to join in with things because I have a disability. And also a fear of the future. You know, my, I know my disability right now, what, what, you know, what I'm facing with, what, you know, I'm kind of finding my way through it. But what if that changes and what will that mean for me and what will that mean for my life? So I do think there is a lot of fear around disability and we kind of need to work together to break that down a little bit. Yeah, it's interesting too to kind of compare the, the way I feel it is like two... Um, related but very separate fears in what you're describing, which is one is that societal, that internalized ableism, the the stigma around uh, the history of what disability is and how we are, and then the sometimes the physical implications, right, or um, the barriers, the actual barriers to the practical way that we can feel like we're contributing to society or can't we? So that's really interesting. Can, in this context and in others, Fern, can fear be a useful or adaptive emotion? And, and, you know, this is something that we often talk about when we have uncomfortable emotions. It's very easy to call them bad emotions or mm -hmm. negative emotions because we don't like the way they feel. But, of course, fear is designed to protect us. You know, it's there to stop us from doing crazy things, you know, because if we didn't fear anything, we wouldn't, we'd just walk out into the road without even, you know, trying to not get hit by a car because we wouldn't have that piece of us that's going, hang on a minute, we can't do that. The other thing that fear does is it's a motivational thing. So it kind of motivates us to take precautions against doing things that might be bad for us or harmful to us. And it can kind of, you know, sometimes we can fear, like I said before, kind of not achieving what we want to. So it can motivate us to take the steps we need in order to actually succeed at what we want. You know, I really just wanted to get to this one because we're a little short on time. Uh, what are some effective strategies for managing, overcoming, dealing with this highly universal emotion? Yeah, so again, I think it's a lot to do with kind of education and understanding. We talked about it with the disability um, question, where I think the more we can understand things and the more we can kind of... Um, you know, break down those thoughts that we have in our mind of what, what will this be like or what will that be like and, you know, and not kind of fear it so much. The more we can have answers to our what-if questions, the less we'll be afraid of those things. So I do think a big part of it is just having those conversations and understanding. Another part, of course, is, you know, sort of being able to relax yourself and have, you know, maybe some techniques and some strategies up your sleeve to calm yourself down when you fear those, when you feel those um, feelings of fear creeping up on you. And also kind of 
gotten used to things. You know, sort of, if you have a fear, just gradually expose yourself to it and also seek support with it, you know, because there are lots of people around who will be there to hold your hand. So if you have a fear of a particular situation or a particular thing, don't don't avoid it altogether, but perhaps in a safe way, have have somebody there that can kind of be your wing person and help you get through that and help you to, to feel a little bit more comfortable with it. And then hopefully that fear will dissolve a little bit. Okay. All right. That's good to know. Uh, lots of good stuff to think about there. Thank you so much, Fern. No worries. Thank you. Have a lovely show and nothing scary. You too. <laughs> Fern at Lalam joins us every other Thursday opposite What in the World. And after the break, as we have him around every Thursday, we got the buzz with Bill Shackleton. He's going to ask us if we would live in a house where there's been a murder. Uh-oh. <laughs> All I know is I think it's illegal not to tell us <laughs> that there's been a murder. All right, we'll find out more about this story after the break. Keep it here for more of Kelly and Ramya on AMI-tv. We're continuing the first hour of Kelly and Ramya here on AMI, and we've got lots of juicy things to talk about next. Grant Hardy and myself, Ramya Umberthen, are holding down this first hour. Kelly will be swapping out with Grant later after the next break. But in the meantime, let's bring on Bill Shackleton because he's got the buzz on a Thursday for us. And Billy... Um, anyways, you tried to swap in and out an article, but it's too late because we already want to know about this murder in the house. So what, where, where does the story come from and what's going on? Okay. Um, it's a house in Hamilton on, well, the question is, would you, would you buy a house or live in a house where, where if you knew a murder had been committed, um, in Hamilton, they, there was a couple that actually bought a house in the 1940s and, they got divorced and some children that were hiking on the Hamilton mountain found, and I'm going to get rid of some of these gory details, but basically found the, um, the husband's remains. Um, and she was charged, but because of a lack of um, all the evidence was circumstantial. So she was released mm -hmm. and she assumed another identity and, um, you know, basically left the area, left the city. And the real question is if, you know, they found a whole bunch of other stuff in the house, um, in a suitcase of body parts and, oh my um, God, which, which I'm not going to go into that, but <laughs> the real Ooh. question is if you, if you knew that a murder was committed, would you, would it bother you? Would, I mean, there's a couple of things I want to point out about this, uh, this interesting, um, is that when you will, you would automatically assume that it would decrease your property value. But according to the article, it might not, um, because it depends on what people believe. The other interesting thing is that a real estate agent has to, in Ontario, has to disclose whether or not, um, um, you know, uh, there had been a, a murder in a house. So it's kind of interesting. It wouldn't bother me. I would, if it was cheaper, what? I'd buy it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> okay. Yeah, you go first, Grant. And you know what? This reminds me of another case I heard of where a, a young woman orchestrated a 
murder against her parents and they, they were saying that for them like culturally and superstitiously it would not be uh likely that someone would want to buy that house mm. in that neighborhood because there's a murder there i don't know i i'm surprised it wouldn't decrease the property value but i think i might be able to accept it but i would be annoyed though if i wasn't told yeah, isn't it? Like, I was asking this re before the break. I feel that it is illegal or some kind of circumstances that have to do with legality if you actually don't tell uh, oh, people, right? Yeah. Yeah, it is. Not oh, yeah, to. For sure. Yeah. Uh, that there was a murder or a death yeah. or something, like somebody's buried in the backyard or whatever the hell happens <laughs> around here with real estate. Uh, yeah, there would be obvious reasons to try to hide these things. I would never... Do you know, when I moved, when my family moved to a house, our first house in Canada, it's still my family's house, um, my dad started making up stories around ghosts in the basement. And remember, this is like the first house we're ever moving to, the first time I've ever experienced a basement. And then he started talking about the attic, the garage, like he's uh, quite a storyteller. And I was scared for months because I didn't know whether this stuff was true or not, but he was so convincing. And he said something about the last owners, but it was so vague about it, kind of like he was wanting to tell us but wouldn't because he knew it would scare us. And I was like, somebody please find out <laughs> if there's been death in this house because my mom and I... Uh, we are quite superstitious. For me, uh, resentfully so. For her, she just fully embraces all the superstition that comes around it. And uh, I, I'm i still hoping. It's been like 10 plus years now, but I'm hoping that none of that stuff was true. But I'm telling you, anytime there was a bad energy, I was like, up, are you sure? Mm -hmm. But well, you I know guess what? Though? Go ahead. No, I guess, I mean, obviously in certain cultures, it would be, you would never. Oh, yeah, unacceptable. I mean, I think call it fun shui or something in, in Chinese where you, well, all these, you know, customs that, that, that you know, that's the type of thing. Mm. And anything property related, though, like if you think like gory stuff has been buried on the property or whatever under the house, whatever, like that would be like a total deal breaker, 100 percent. Not yeah. that they would sell sell that properly if they knew, but if they, if it was a suspicion, I wouldn't be able to deal with that. It's interesting well, because it's it's one of these one of the only things with real estate with buying and selling where it, simply superstition alone is enough to drive people to yeah oh yeah you know yeah. say yes or no to it. Just like the number thirteen, right? It's pretty interesting. I, I can have I such an impact. Yeah. All right, I, Billy. I actually bought a bed from a dead woman and, and when I was living in an apartment. <laughs> oh my God. And um yeah, and, and I can tell another story where I was coming out of my apartment and the woman was dead and she was in a stretcher and I banged into the stretcher and knocked it over and didn't know if she was dead. <laughs> you knocked uh, over the stretcher with yeah, the Yeah, I didn't know that I didn't know it was there. And I didn't know she uh yeah, she was in it. She was dead, but and I didn't I know I feel like we need a moment to process this. Yeah. yeah. But why, why do I feel like, like none of this phases you somehow? It You're doesn't. just like, oh, it, it doesn't. He's so deadpan telling us the story. Well, that's Weird. why. That, oh, God, that's deadpan. Why I, wouldn't I did care. it again. I wouldn't care. I wouldn't care if the house was, you know, whatever. Yeah, I no. mean, I guess after you've knocked over a dead woman in a stretcher, <laughs> <laughs> buying a house where there's no longer dead people actually physically there is nothing. Yeah. It's a breeze. Low bar. Oh, yeah. 
Okay. Well, Bill, I'm so glad we uh, made you tell us this <laughs> this article. Where else do you want to go from well, here? We're going to go to entrepreneurs, actually. What a, what a combination. Mm -hmm. Entrepreneurs uh, with disabilities activate allies and rewrite the narrative. So this is kind of an interesting story about immigrants from, I think they're from, the Eggermans are from Turkey. They started a business called Crepe, um, Crepe Crazy, and they have a number of locations in Texas and one in Baltimore. And the reason why I bring this article up is that is so difficult for people to, to you know, an enabled body person to start a business. And when you have a person with a disability, um, they have to overcome all these obstacles like accommodation and financial barriers because, you know, financially they're often they have to leverage the money themselves a lot of financial institutions won't lend these people the money because they don't think a person with disabilities they don't know what a person can do and you know when you tie this with with the upcoming person with disability day and i really think that these people are trailblazers and we need to advocate we need to push we need to um, we need government legislation to change things. But I like the idea of this couple that started the business, and I believe it was 2007, and and it, it's grown into such a, I mean, they are changing the narrative one customer at a time when you visit their food trucks. Yesterday um, at the Amazon event that I went to, it, they were talking about how much capital or just money, like the pool of money that people with disabilities have. And this is the opposite thing that I'm talking about, which is just how much we can contribute to consumerism, right? And to capitalism. There's just so much money out there that is owned by people with disabilities. And uh, without considering that, aspect of it business are just losing out right on all this yeah. oh, uh, yeah. opportunity and so this you know kind of putting i guess putting our foot in it quite directly as people with disabilities getting into businesses we can come with that perspective right it's so it's such an interesting tie-in yeah I, I, I really think yeah go ahead yeah it's literally this idea that you have this one size fits all like mm. lever, you know, we're targeting like 18 to 54 able-bodied, whatever people, you know, with our ads, whatever, but like they're losing literally like so much losing out by not thinking outside that box. Yep. Yeah. You're, that's such a fair point, Grant. Like we talk about targeting. It's so out there, these um, notions of target audience and such, but without considering people with disabilities in that target audience, like, or part of that diversity, uh, you're right. They're losing out on so much. And that's why I think this kind of thing is quite interesting to focus on just like people with disabilities getting in on the business side of it. I, I agree. Good. I mean, now their their kids run it, but yeah, I, I it's it's we need more people like that mm -hmm. to do these things. Oh, yeah. I think. Yeah, and more support to make sure yeah. these kind oh, of things can oh, get off the ground. Absolutely, absolutely. Particularly yeah. financially. I mean, um, you know, and 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 the misconceptions that that people have, but finance is huge. I mean, if you can't finance a business, you're not going to go anywhere. I mean, you need to. We need to get. Um, you know, the, the, the legislation or whatever 
to get allow these people with disabilities to get the financing they need mm. um you know um you know to start a business no we do it's truly like baffling that in this day and age you can have it is those oh, it kinds is. of requirements for who am i going to lend money to based on demographics whatever that's 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 very suspect we need mm. to have some laws to definitely turn that around i don't know how we would do that without you know the people just being subtle and saying oh i just didn't feel like lending them money that's a huge issue and it's not just for the tokenism either, right? Like, oh, wow, no, no. what a nice biz disability-owned business this is. Look at that, the first one in Canada or wherever the hell. Like, we want it to be so normalized. And I know that that's one step at a time, one business at a time, uh, one kind of support offering at a time. But still, like, that's the goal. We're reaching for it to be so normal and typical uh, for the representation of people with disabilities. Billy, one last article you want to get into? Well, we can get to Donald Sutherland. The film star Donald Sutherland is um, photoed and depicted on New Canada Post stamp. So Donald Sutherland, as you know, is a very, a very famous actor from New Brunswick. Um, so he has done um, um, uh, the Italian job, things like um, over, well, he's done over over 200, I believe, film and TV programs um, and it's can it's always good to see a, a Canada Post stamp um, that recognizes a Canadian. Um, he's done so many like what is it, the Italian Job? Um, I believe he did the remake of the Invasion of the Body Snatchers. Um, so many things that he's done, and I'm glad that the, the, the stamp. I wasn't able to find out when it actually was released, but it was certainly recent, and it's it's good to see that um, a Canadian being honored. Mm. As always. And I love when you bring up these stories as well, because it's just a tidbit of information, uh, history or education, you know, on some of this Canadian content. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, that's that's really important because Canada definitely doesn't get as much representation as oh, we, we don't. For sure. And we have so many talented artists and that's just so important to get that recognition and it's very meaningful, really. Yeah, it is. Yeah, that's fair, too. Billy, thank you. Thank Still you. Still a little scarred from the first story, but I'm glad we <laughs> oh, yeah. covered a bit more than just that. I was, how, like, how do how do we transition from that to, like, know. business? I don't know. But uh, we did it. We, we did it, it and it was meaningful also. Like, wow. <laughs> Proud of us. Yep. <laughs> Bill, we'll talk to you tomorrow. <laughs> okay, bye. Hello. Bye. Bill Shackleton joining us on The Buzz. That's Wednesdays, Thursdays, Fridays. We wrap up this first hour. Seriously, it's fear that we're laughing from. Okay, this is, it's not entertainment alone. After the break, we have hour two of Kelly and Ramia. Uh, here's what's coming up real quick. We have our weekly roundtable with content development specialist Karen McGee and Kelly back with Kelly. We'll be back with that. Also, Laura Bain is joining us to discuss education for blind and partially sighted youths in Nova Scotia. After the break, we have Mary Mamalidi from Kitchen Confession joining us. Thank you, Grant, for the first hour. Thank you so much, Ramia. It was a lot of fun. All right. Chat with you later. We'll be right back. Cheers. Keep it here for more of Kelly and Ramya on AMI-tv.
Well, we have reached the precious second hour of Kelly and Ramia, and this time the title of the show stands true because Kelly McDonald's back. I had lots of fun with Grant Hardy in the first hour. I'm Ramia. Um, then Kelly, uh, you heard the hour, yes? You heard yeah, what we he went through? To me, uh, <laughs> he explained to me over the break that, you know, now as he settled back, he said, you know, Grant and Ramia doesn't sound bad. So there you go. Yeah. Ah, I wonder what it's like I, to be I don't know paid if he told just you to that, stay home. It's nice. Grant and Romeo, Romeo and Grant. Yeah. No, either way. We no, can play around with the title a little. Don't try to slip yourself ahead of him. No? He's a guest. Don't be rude. Uh, oh, yeah, you're, I was going to say <laughs> I was going to say alphabetical, but that doesn't work out in my favor either. Oh, no, 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 it mm. doesn't. No. But, yes, and yes, yes, I heard your Billy story that you're still reeling from. Yeah, it's scary because you were like, yeah, and you know, just very nonchalant yeah. reaction to that. I've heard the story. I, I remember. I remember when that all happened. Oh, I see. This is I your remember second him going time to around. the auction to to buy. Oh no, probably third or fourth or three hundred. We've talked to Bill about that for years. I always <laughs> used to ask him, "How comfortable is that uh, woman's bed that you uh, bought at the auction?" <laughs> yeah. <laughs> say, oh, it's Bill, good. It's we good. get to know Bill just a little more every. Uh, time we talk to him, don't well, we? Well, and you know the truth of the matter is the spirit of the woman still there. Oh, God. Okay. Well, we we did not sign up to be this frightened after Halloween, but I guess or it's morbid. happening Or regardless. this morbid. Or, or this anything. So let's move on to the kitchen, shall we? That won't be haunted conversation. Yeah, well, Mary on. loves that we're bringing this up first. Mary Mamalidi, let's go. If you're like me, the kitchen is your favorite room in the house. I'm Mary Mamaliti, here with a handful of goodies from my kitchen, including food trends, cooking tips, and of course, some delicious recipes. Mary, please promise that you're not going to bring up any similar content on this uh, segment. How are you? Absolutely not. It's all food, fun, and that's it. Yeah, and, yeah. And, and bold and yeah. enough, but still in the kitchen. Uh, so you're sharing ways to become a better cook and take your food from bland to bold. I love this statement. <laughs> I am, because I mean, I want everyone to, to understand cooking is a skill that improves and develops over time with practice. No one is a fabulous cook from day one. You know, I had a few successes a ton of fails. And I didn't want you to struggle and get frustrated the same way I did. So I wanted to share some simple and effective ways to amp up those meals. Mm. I want you to Mayor, turn were, up Mayor, were your were your yeah. failures because you were just being too um striking out too far. Not saying that it people shouldn't be ambitious, but do you think you were biting literally off more than you could chew or just those little oops I since I like garlic, I guess that was a bit too much. Were those those well, little I think mishaps it was a like combination. That? Yeah, I think it was a combination where sometimes I would think, okay, well, these would taste great together. Once I put it together, mm -mm, not so much. Mm -hmm. um, okay. Okay. You know, so it was a little bit of experimenting and a lot of um, not having enough on hand in my pantry before I start cooking, before I do anything. Uh, because then I try to make adjustments and you're making these adjustments along the way. Right. So you're kind of adjusting the recipe and it really doesn't work out. So that's why I wanted to kind of start with some staple um, pantry items and even in your spice drawer, which I thought would be really helpful. Right. So like to turn up the flavor on any meal, use herbs and spices. Right. There's more to seasoning than salt and pepper. I mean, I love a little gold salt, a little salt and pepper, but using herbs, it can definitely transform any meal. So in addition to salt and pepper, keep these seven dried spices always stocked in your spice drawer 
or your pantry. Mm-hmm. First one, basil. Basil, honestly, you can use it in soups, stews, chilies. It's delicious. Little goes a long way. You can use as much or as little as you want. Um, just whenever you use dry spices, put it in your in the palms of your hands or even the tips of your fingers. Run your hands together as it kind of sprinkles into the bowl or into the pot because it releases those flavors, those, those oils from it. Garlic. So garlic powder. Add it to almost anything savory. It's great to have on hand. Oregano. Uh, Mary, Sprinkle it on, yeah. Garlic versus garlic salt. Do you prefer garlic powder just because we can then control the salt oh, level or is there correct. reasons? Yeah, okay. yeah, that's why I do Better it. I you. do it so I can control the salt. Mm. Fair, okay. Yeah. I mean, you can always mix it yourself, but if you want the two together, but honestly, it's just, it's a little easier for me because I get to, to tamper that, to kind of work with the salt that I like. All right. Thyme. I absolutely love thyme. Put it in salad dressings, pork, chicken, lamb, fish, duck, even veggies. It's great with almost everything. So definitely have some dried thyme in your uh, spice drawer. And dry oregano. Sorry, I think we just skipped over that a bit. Oh, dry oregano. Sprinkle it on salads, pasta, soups. It's lovely to have. Mm -hmm. Uh, Chili powder. Chili powder is great. Use Mm. it anywhere you want to add a bit of a kick. So spice up chilies, stews, soups, meats even beans. Little goes a long way. You can add as little as or as much as you want, but don't overdo it. And <laughs> chili powder is a taste. combination of dried and uh, crushed spices, right? Compared Absolutely. to dried chili flakes. Okay. Absolutely. And a lot of what I'm mentioning here to keep on hand is what's used in making your own homemade chili powder. Mm-hmm. So it's great to have all these spices. And then if you run out of chili powder, you can make your own. Crushed red pepper flakes. So these, they can be added. Mm-hmm. They can add a touch of you know, like excitement to any dish. Sprinkle them yep. over pizzas, pastas, um, even scrambled eggs. It gives that instant flavor boost. Yeah, I like it there. The the eggs, because I find sometimes when I, I cook with it with on something, meat or whatever. Mm-hmm. Mm, but like you say, in these applications, it gives the bold. It gives yeah. the hot if you like a little hot. Because I think for... I find them hotter than I originally ever thought they were in the sense of, oh, they do give you a little more ah kick there. And it, it's interesting, it but does. I do love the idea of the eggs when you think about it, along with, you know, one of your, your hotter sauces. It does. I mean, we actually, Frank and I, we grow our own, we dry them, and then we turn it into chili flakes. They are so spicy. So you got a little really does go a long way because we mix a whole bunch up together. Uh, but it really does add that little boost of something. And then there's, and then there's uh, cumin. Cumin, you toast whole seeds, use it ground in dishes. Honestly, it accentuates the sweetness of root vegetables, like carrots, beets. Try adding it to vegetable and bean stews. It's delicious. Grilled tofu, um, a little sprinkle on beef and lamb. It's also really nice. And here are a couple of bonus ones that I want you to add into the mix. Nutmeg, ginger, and cinnamon. They're also great to have on hand and stocked in your spice drawer. Nice. Nice. I'm still back stuck on your lamb. <laughs> I'm sorry, because I love that. Oh, my gosh. And, and the, oh, yeah, for sure. Yeah. And I, I think I'm going to add in a little bit of, have you ever tried adding citrus or vinegar? To any of your dishes? Most of the time, yes. Yeah. Right? Probably more vinegar than citrus, even though I I like citrus lightly for certain. Yeah, I mean, well, okay, so here's how to tell. If you take a bite of food and then you thought to yourself, 
that needs a little bit of pizzazz. So what it needs is really a touch of acid. So either from citrus or from vinegar. Mm. So adding right. acid to a dish, it'll instantly brighten it up, give it life. And then even maybe some savory foods, they benefit that little touch of brightness of the acid. So try adding a little red wine vinegar to a beef stew. It's delicious. Um, lemon juice to mayonnaise uh, min or minced pickled minced pickled onions say that three times fast uh, <laughs> <laughs> add some lemon to um, a bean salad it's delicious so acids especially citrus are best when they're added and i want you to remember this at the end of cooking because you get that burst of of uh, brightness so um, mayor the cinnamon i'm still i just want to drop back there because yeah. of the use of it i mean you have to be pretty liberal, I would say, with most of, if you're, especially if you're adding it not to something, because I think I associate it so much with mainly sweet. If you try Cinnamon? it on other things, yeah. Yeah, you can, definitely. But again, a little goes a long way. Always start right. off with a little and then work your way uh, up. Taste as you go, because you want to make sure that you're adding enough. And always flavor it to your taste buds, to what you enjoy and what you like. Mm -hmm. Because cloves and so cinnamon, start... awesome combo, no matter yes. what you kind of, whether it's a, a sweet or whether it's like meat or something too, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I think absolutely. Um, with acid, Mary, what I've experienced is you're right with the touch of acid. Obviously, you're right. But I mean, it, I've experienced mm -hmm. what you're talking about with that. It needs something and then that something ends up being acid. The problem is I've also tried foods where like there's just way too much acid and I'm like Ugh, this is what it's like to have you know vinegar added to You're things right. and then oh, that oh. has scared me from adding any bit of it at all but we're getting better mm. yeah definitely like I said try a little bit and you'll notice, I, I, taste it, even if you're making a bean salad, taste it before right. you use that right. little bit of acid and then just squeeze about half a lemon over top, mix mm. it up and then taste it again. You'll notice it's it's got this different level of uh, mm. brightness to it. And, um, fish and you can it get really away does with make more a difference. But, but the salad or like you say, bean salad, they, there you really notice. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um does it make a difference a lot, Mayor, if you cook your protein right from the refrigerator or let it come to room temperature? Okay, so absolutely does make a difference. So I'm suggesting that you temper your protein. Now, normally when you hear the term tempered cooking, it's when you're baking and adding something hot to eggs, but it's also important to do it with your proteins. You want to do this before you're cooking. So leave your protein out on the counter for about 10 to 15 minutes. It's just to take off that little chill, right? So then tossing cold protein into a hot skillet, it causes it to seize, which then results in a tough steak or a tough cut of meat. So leaving it out for a little bit, it helps that protein cook more evenly and it keeps it tender and juicy. I want to add also, if you want to get a sear, like that sear, nice crispy sear on your steak, dab your mm. protein with dry paper towel it's to remove any of that excess moisture because before you add it to the hot skillet what will happen is if you add that moist that that steak with the moisture on it to the skillet it'll steam it instead of sear it right so you want to get a nice yeah. crisp sear it's it's definitely necessary to move any of that moisture so searing protein it seals in and helps keep all of those wonderful tasty juices inside and that's why you want to sear it yeah uh, what's the quickest last tip you can give us? Ah, uh, 
nuts. If you're adding nuts to a dish, uh, it's an easy way to add texture, complexity of flavor, but I want you to toast the nuts. Make It makes them a little nuttier. It amplifies their natural flavor and it gives you that crunch. It's always fun. Yep. Delicious. Okay, we're going to have to leave the cheese on the table, but this is awesome. Thank you. Good idea. I'll get to it before you do yeah. if it's left on the table, guys. So there you I go. already feel like a bolder chef, Mary. Thank you. Oh, you're welcome. Is it bolder you. or more bold? All right. Bolder, more bold? <laughs> Either way. Now that we're questioning it, we seem less sounds bold. Like something from a, sounds like something from a Netflix show. More bold. <laughs> more bold. <laughs> Take care, Mary. We'll talk to you next week. Bye. Mary Mamaliti of Kitchen Confession. If you go to kitchenconfession.com, you'll find recipes, discussions, uh, links to her blog posts, and she's everywhere. She's on Instagram and wherever else you want to find her. Also, search for Kitchen Confession on your favorite podcast platform if you want to hear some of the fantastic discussions she's had with guests in the past. Um, after the break, we're talking to Laura Bain from Halifax, and she wants to talk to us about education for blind and partially sighted youth in Nova Scotia. There's some recent changes that have taken underway uh, as well in uh, Nova Scotia. So we'll discuss all that and more with her on Kelly and Ramia. Don't go away. There's more great conversation with Kelly and Ramya right around the corner. Welcome back. It's Kelly and Ramia. We're here with you. Let's see. 2 to 4 p.m. Eastern live on AMI-tv. 4 to 6 p.m. And a couple of repeats throughout the days and nights on AMI-audio. But all in all, we're also available on demand via your favorite podcast platform. So just search for Kelly and Ramia over there and you'll find the full show as well as segmented out pieces of the show. And that's a daily upload. So you can find us there at all times. Two hours. Wow. Mm -hmm. Feels long today. The show feels long. Really, does it? Sarcasm yeah. seeps I'm getting through. tired. <laughs> <laughs> I was waiting for you to just simply We're say, what are you talking about? You what? just got here. 20 minutes or whatever you've been here. Yeah, okay. <laughs> for the grand total of 20 minutes, going to go from uh, a wonderful food topic to a lot of great information and some reflection here, Rum, I'm sure, with our next topic on our part too, but we get to learn a lot as we welcome in Laura Bain. And uh, Laura joins us to talk about accessibility and so much more from the East Coast. Today, Laura, welcome back. We're talking about something that I think most of us go right back in, in the disabled world and think, oh my goodness, especially those of us in the in the blind and low vision world, as we talk about education for the blind and partially sighted youth in Nova Scotia and some recent changes of services that are being delivered. Um, you grew up in Nova Scotia, Laura. What kind of services did you receive? Yeah, you know, that's absolutely right. And I'll say first, just before we get going, that um, I had sent you Nova Scotia in my notes, but we're actually talking about all of Atlantic Canada here. So mm. all four Atlantic provinces are impacted by these changes. So uh, the services I received are the same that students in all of those provinces would have received. So there are sort of two types of services that I received growing up, which is that I had an itinerant teacher who came to see me in my home community and at school. For me, that happened once a week. I understand that that's rare now for students to get that frequency, but uh, we would do all kinds of things from learning orientation and mobility to technology training and 
they would help make sure that things were accessible in the classroom for me. But I would also have short-term placements at a place called APSI, which stands for Atlantic Provinces Special Education Authority. And we just really referred to it as the School for the Blind because it was sort of the evolution of the old Halifax School for the Blind. So once a year, I would go in for a week or two and I'd have more intensive training in things like orientation and mobility or independent living, or as I got older, things like career or post-secondary. And that's sort of been the status quo in the Atlantic provinces up until fairly recently. And what happened? Like, how did things change and when? Yeah, so unsurprisingly, it changed with COVID. So Mm -hmm. when the pandemic hit, these short-term placements shut down. And that seemed reasonable to people because there's a residential component. Students go and they stay overnight in the residence building. But then Mm -hmm. families started becoming concerned when the placements didn't start up again by the 2022-2023 school year. And during that time, there'd been a move to more virtual services and any social gatherings were done more on a regional level. So just sort of, you know, it would be just central to Halifax or whatever communities you had nearby. And then in November of 2022, APSI confirmed to parents and students that it was their intention And my understanding is that there's been another change to how they do psychosocial or psychoeducational assessments of blind and partially sighted students. So this was being done before by professionals at APSI who were specifically trained in working with those students, but now it's being more done by mainstream professionals. And the concern with that is that those professionals often aren't trained in how to properly assess blind and partially sighted students. So this can lead to not really understanding a student's potential and capability. I think we can sort of imagine what might happen there. And also parents are finding that they're being refused services because professionals are saying, hey, I don't really know how to assess your kid that has this disability. So that's that's another issue. Yeah, we we were talking about this a week or two on the show ago because of how services being denied because, well, we're short of staff. So why don't you just stay home as if that was the solution instead of figuring it out? When you talk about people not having the life experience dealing with the students and what they see and just simply allegedly being trained, we know what that gets us and how many Mm -hmm. times we hear, well, yeah, they're trained on how to deal with that. or And you say, for what, five minutes of of, of something? Um, It's... The lack of recognition of the importance of these things or trying to push things onto a parent. Well, can't a parent teach you how to work in the kitchen and or do this and that? And, and I find that just amazing. What is the reasons that they've get, be given you guys what, what's out there for these changes? What are parents being told? So the reasons have been a bit vague. One reason that APSI cited was inequitable access to the short-term placements, but this was confusing for parents and students because our experience was that APSI always provided transportation to and from their home community, and there wasn't any cost for that, and there also wasn't any out-of-pocket costs at all for coming and staying during the short-term placements. You know, there was food and accommodations provided, so... That explanation just didn't make a lot of sense. Now, APSI conducted a review of their services in 2022. So presumably that was whatever the results were that came out of that were part of this decision. But that's been quite contentious because they sent out a survey to parents, but the participation rate was less than 2%. And many families are saying that they never received the survey, so they weren't able to give their feedback. 
Hmm. And that's a ridiculously no num low number. Yeah, it is. Yeah. <laughs> Don't buy it. Don't buy it. How has the community been responding to this? These changes, Laura. So from what I've heard, not great. Now, to be fair, I'm involved on the advocacy side of things, so that's probably more who mm. I've been hearing from. But families met with APSI to express their concern back in May of 22, and they sent an open letter to the APSI board. That was in December, and that had 80 signatures on it, including my own. That was from parents, students, former APSI staff. So that's a pretty good number. Now, I first became aware of the issue when I attended a Zoom call in November that had been organized organized for APSI stakeholders to kind of get together and chat about how we might advocate for this issue. And I don't want to guess at how many people were on that call, but there were a lot and from a lot of different generations. And the advocacy efforts really haven't been that successful. So then this past August, a couple of community members actually met with the Nova Scotia Minister of Education and Early Childhood Development to further express their concerns. I, I stop because I think of how many uses we've used the W.R.S. McDonald School in Brantford. You know, when they have things go on, it was always picked as a place because of reasons like, hey, you have the dormitories there. You have this, you have that, that lessens what was perceived to be cost. So you think, okay, so you do your cost mm -hmm. analysis, you do everything at, at that meeting a couple of years ago, well, I guess a little over a year ago, and, and what findings come out to say, hey, let's not do it. You think of four provinces being involved, everybody out there that needs this, and I understand some people are further out, maybe not as in touch as, as those in the Halifax area or, or just certain parents that are probably very much on this, Laura. The meeting that you attended earlier this week what was said there about the future of the service delivery? Can you share any of that with us? For sure. So I attended a virtual session that was hosted by APSI this week, and it was presenting kind of their new service delivery model. I thought I'd have a lot more to report to you about that than I did, because I found that it was sort of lean on specific information. And I was one of only two or three participants in the session that I attended. Um, because I attended over Zoom, I was also sent a link to their online guide. And again, I read through that and I found that it was pretty lean on information. My impression was that there is a bit of a move towards supporting more universal design within the classroom rather than individualized services. There was no mention of short-term placements, but again, it was all sort of very vague language. They did talk about these regional in-person gatherings and virtual learning, but those are both activities that parents have raised concerns with. Mm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Because in theory, you would think, and again, I always find it interesting to think about this, Toronto versus this location, Vancouver versus, you know, Winnipeg or something, because I always think of size and what people can do. In theory, you would say, yeah, it'd be nice if someone could stay in their neighborhood and learn all the things that we're talking about. But to do that, you'd have to have that qualified person with experience at almost every school and be and and resources like that, Laura. Yeah, you know, I'm just going to challenge that a little bit, I guess, on two fronts in that there's been concern expressed by parents in regional in rural areas, areas rather oh, sure. that, um, you know, if all this stuff is being done regionally, then their kids are never being exposed to doing O&M in a city environment. And we know that so many of us are successful because we move into city environments right. to work mm -hmm. or to attend school. So they're maybe just not getting that kind of taking transit or encountering traffic lights and things like that. And the other thing is, 
you know, I formed lifelong friendships with other students from all four Atlantic provinces, not just in my re my region. And these friendships, I still talk to these people on the phone. Sometimes I, I've gone to visit them in other provinces. My partner went a few months ago to visit a friend in New Brunswick that I made at APSI. So those relationships are very important. And actually, I was reflecting on this advocacy effort, and it just wouldn't have taken place without that blind network. Certainly, I didn't learn about it through APSI. I learned about it through all of the friends and role models that I had made as a student at APSI. So I worry about the future of that network and that community. Yeah, there's so much trickle effect to what the changes and the implications around that. Do you have a biggest concern? Well, you know, before this segment, I went on and I read the more than 20 testimonials from various stakeholders that are available in a briefing note at blindstudents.ca. I would you know, suggest that people go and read that. I was really overwhelmed. I've mentioned some of the concerns that parents had. I'm not going to be able to bring them all forward. But for me, I would say just the biggest concern is the future of the blind community here in Atlantic Canada. And if people are not forming those networks and they're not learning those independent living skills that we know are so incredibly vital. Mm -hmm. You know, it's it's frustrating, Laura, because I hear you say some of those things that for you are important. They they are so true in the when it comes to the relationships, the people to learn a lot from and, and to take from. And hey, how do you do this and have those conversations? So many of those important things that would go under the radar to, to other people because people in their own neighborhoods or whatever in they learn they learn what they do and may not necessarily feel that that would have been or any any benefit to them. It's a totally different sphere. But it's so crazy because so many times people sit back and say, you know what, I don't want to be treated differently than others. And a lot of time it works against us because of the reality. That, hey, man, any leg up that you can get, whether it's advisement for someone else who walks in similar shoes or, or anything you can learn or make it easier because life has there's so many things you got to deal with all at once outside mm -hmm. of the normal day to day that make things hard, challenging, and can amp up the issues of, of failure. What do you say? Yeah, I mean, that's so true. And universal design is fa is fantastic. I'm a big advocate for universal design, but we know that it can't address these specific needs that we have to learn blind skills, you know, yeah. and... Yeah, I, I know we're getting tight on time. I had so, I, so many things I wanted to ask you about uh, kind of your thoughts, but any kind of thoughts that either of you wanted to share on sort of this whole question we've been having about how to educate, how best to educate blind students? Mm. Well, I do believe in the, um, and this is going to sound like a fence-sitting thing, but it really is, and I do believe in the integration and the kind of, uh, success and benefits of having integrated educational opportunities. I've had that approach in my own life predominantly but I do also in I find so much success and very specific kinds of advocacy confidence independent is brought forth through specialized education Laura so when uh, programs are cut and you, you know I've talked to people who have personal experience with this in different provinces so there's so much nuanced conversations around why it happens how people are individually affected um, some of the really like upsetting things you hear and stories from people around way I guess the attesting to when they're pulled out of programs, how that affects the rest of their lives in, uh, I guess, school or, you know, home life or work life, all kinds of things. But I go back to what I said earlier. It's it's a huge 
effect. Like it's more than just the particular skills you're learning. It ends up affecting you in various stages of life and various connections, as you've been mentioning with networking, et cetera. Absolutely. And your confidence and just your advocacy yeah. levels. What about you, Kels? Any uh, well, sort of it, thoughts it's a, there? It's a, yeah, it's a hard one, too, because I look back to before I went to W. Ross, after I went to W. Ross, what I've observed through colleges and just what got me ready and how many things we were missing or where people had to go specifically um, to do some of the stuff. And I heard all the voices screaming, well, someone shouldn't have to go to a W. Ross or someone shouldn't have to have this experience. But I also noticed how you become more settled, how stress through life, if you can find the ways to advocate for yourself, even if that's not something you do regularly, but you know how to speak up, you've been taught that, you've heard others say it from your community, it makes life, which is full of stressors already, it, it makes it so difficult if you are if you are not armed. Thanks, Laura. Yeah, yeah thanks. Are we, uh, we're out of time, are we? Mm-hmm. Yeah, we're, we're going into the round table. You're both be our round table guests. We'll have to kick the Karen McGee aside. Thanks, okay, Laura. Thanks Appreciate it. Thanks for the great it. discussion, guys. Thank you. Definitely. Thank you. Uh, Laura Bain talking to us about education for low vision and blind individuals in the uh, Atlantic provinces and some recent changes, uh, changes that have affected the service delivery. And she'll be back next month. We appreciate these conversations with Laura Bain. Uh, after the break, we have the weekly roundtable. Kelly McDonald has picked out some topics for us. Maybe he was picking them out through that first hour, you know, like very productive of him. And he's going to put myself and Karen McGee to the test. It's not supposed to be a test. It's supposed to be very friendly on the roundtable. We'll be right back. It's fun, insightful, and inclusive. Kelly and Ramya return in a minute. You're tuned into Kelly and Ramia on AMI, and we are getting into the next part of our show. I just don't want to waste any more time, Kels. I'm very much looking forward to the roundtable. Oh, I'm glad you're conscious-minded. <laughs> My goodness. All right, mm-hmm. let's get you to work here then for the first time today. Uh, folks, right. <laughs> we bring it on on Thursdays. We call it the roundtable, and we chat, and uh, let's get into it. Isn't it convenient that we have a round table? Well, it's actually oval. Just say yeah, it. The blind guy feels it now goes, <laughs> well, I don't know what I guess it is oval. Kind of oval. And today's guest, Karen McGee, joining us, of course, from Morrisburg. Uh, and, uh, of course, she is our de- content development specialist. I still, I still, Karen, always look at case John Melville changes your guys' handles over the, like, oh, John, I think I, it needs to be changed. I'm always afraid to look down and, what do you mean you've changed their titles again? Welcome back. I, I promise you when we change them again, because you know we will. Um, oh, yeah. We'll let you know. We'll let you know. <laughs> do you have any ideas what you guys might get called? Well, I mean, that you can say on the air. Oh, I do, but I'm not going to say. Oh, oh, it sounds like it's coming soon, Rum. I don't know. Mm. Don't start. Any, don't you dare start any. This rumors. is how rumors actually start on our show. Yeah. Uh, I wonder if they'll be as long as CNIB ones. Anyway, here we go. Our first item: the latest numbers in the U.S. have plummeted. They say that birth rates, excuse me, have plummeted over the last uh, well through the 21st century. Let's take a listen. 
Between 2007 and 2022, the nation's birth rate fell by nearly 23 percent, according to the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, down to about 11 births per thousand people. As demographers try to explain why it's happening, not just in the U.S., but around the world, some economists worry that there won't be enough young people in the future to care for an aging population. Environmentalists applaud the birth rate decline, saying it reduces stress on the planet's resources. Jim Ryan, ABC News. Hmm. So, Karen, we give a thumbs up on, okay, it takes uh, down some of the stress if we want to buy that because we're still harming everything else. But that's that's not a great sign as we age. And, hey, who's going to be around to help us out? Well, I'm very lucky. I have a niece and nephews who are already sort of tapped to do that. Um, Do they know? (laughs) But, yeah. My sister knows. Their mother knows. (laughs) Their their mother knows. Like. there's a sign-up sheet that they've already had their names put on. <laughs> they've got was, a big load been, to carry. I've been very nice to them in their youth. My oldest niece just turned 16. I've been incredibly nice and generous to them just so that they will think of that. Conditionally. That's right. It is time, right. it is best, time well, to okay, make what was, what was the best Christmas gift you gave them? Like, I want to hear this. How do you mean being nice? Well, I mean, trips trips to water parks, Disney's, Uh like when they came to my place, they could play video games as long as they wanted. No real bedtime. Uh We do adventures. I'm the, I'm the fun fun aunt. aunt. Yes. Your sister's going to love this now. I hope she's listening. She knows. I I always, I no, I always check with her first. She knew Mm -hmm. she, she agreed that it's okay for kids to have fun time at Aunt Karen's and just kind of make, you know, they don't, the kids don't know I check with their mom first. Um, (laughs) But I do. I mean, I'm not going to, you know, take them somewhere where she's not going to want them to go or go see, you know, if I'm taking them to a movie that I may question, I would check with her first. Um, but yeah, like I never had any kids. Um, mostly it was work-related. I was working a job in my childbearing years where um, it would have been nearly impossible to be able to afford to have a child because uh, child care would have been so exorbitant. Right. Um, just with the hours that uh, we were working. So I, it, it was, it wasn't something that I never said I didn't want. I love kids. Um, but it just work was always first, if that makes sense. And mm-hmm. then it mm-hmm. was too late. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it's interesting because you got a, in a lot of, a lot of our heads, this is what we want and where our focus is to get things going on our level of what we feel responsible for. Ramya, any thoughts for you in the sense of what, what we see going on here is, I mean, I'm not surprised. I've heard this trend, and I'm sure the world has had it go up and down. But yeah. I also see that people live differently, so differently, whether you're, you're in a Toronto, whether you're in a rural area. And there are a lot of people that just say, I'm not sure I want to do that or have time for that or bring children into this world. You, you, you'll hear the odd comment like that. Mm-hmm. I mean, definitely lifestyle choices is something I was going to bring up because you mentioned work, Karen, and I think that's a big, big part of it, like women in the workplace and uh, just full-time work being j- as prioritized, if not more, which might be like a big, a deeper root of this trend of um, less kids and, and less people having kids or wanting to have kids. I also think that going to the other side of it, of uh, elderly um, citizens being taken care of, there's a lot of change in that regard as well, right? Like people will have kids potentially, but um, taking care of our own parents and uh, that caregiving has moved to a slightly different way of being as well, which is just care homes and um, other situations where it's not necessarily your kids taking care of you. I mean, that's very well known in different parts of the world, but here in North America, at least like in in big cities and such, 
uh, there are other options out there for you if you can afford it, and that seems to be mm. coming, being, becoming bigger and I, bigger. I wonder if some of that care is what's also reflected here as being a concern because of those younger people, less people working in that in the field because there are less people. I wonder if some of that is also factored in with this, or if it's primarily families consciously. Of, yeah. Well, yeah, and a lot of cultures you take care of your parents you don't send them off to uh, a retirement home or whatever unless they're in the shape to say yes i'm fine i'm going there uh, if they need that at medical in a lot of cultures the the people stay you, you the, the family sticks together and and takes care of so i'm interested to see because i i think mostly like what you ladies have said people just have different focuses and we also know certain countries have said hey like china this is how many kids you're allowed to have otherwise you're committing a crime here um, and I'm sure uh, uh, somewhere as big as China, it, it's going to have a, an effect on those numbers. Um, as the city of Lewiston, Maine, recovers from the state's largest mass shooting, a few celebrities had small parts in boosting the spirits of local high schools. In a football rivalry, Lewiston, Lewiston High School and uh, Edward Little High School in Auburn played last night. Now, this game was postponed from Friday night while Pete, people, the police searched for a gunman who had shot and killed 18 people and injured 13 others. Retired New England Patriot Rob Gronkowski and actor Will Ferrell uh, made a hype video you guys are amazing, sticking together to stay strong through these tough times. Let's bring it on. Let's bring it on like it's Donkey Kong. Uh, all right. Now, James Taylor did an acoustic version of the national anthem before the game, and U.S. President Joe Biden and the First Lady are on their way to meet with survivors of the shooting. Um, Rum, does this... We see it more and more because, of course, with social media, with the ways that people can instantaneously interact or put mm. their feelings out there, whether they're writing it or doing a video. Um, what do you give this? A thumbs up when you see something like this done, these guys supporting these two high schools, which is, to me, nice, amazing. But how do you feel when you've seen it elsewhere? Anything that comes to mind? I think that, yeah, social media and this real-time interact activity can go either way um that's just the power of social media whether it ends up being um highly influential in a great way or highly in influential in a terrible terrifying way so with this obviously it's very supportive we know that this kind of thing is so easily widespread now um the impact is not lost on us on the influencers themselves that are putting out real-time posts or uh the the people who are you know receiving it right but at the same time i i I know that everything has the potential to stir up controversy and to stir up differences of opinion. So that's where we got to stay in our in our own better judgments in our heads, right? So it's not just how much the external is influencing us, but what we're taking out of it, what our judgments are uh, like when we see these posts, when we experiencing them, experiencing them, et cetera. For me... I prefer a post like this, uh, to know it's a direct to, to, uh, and positive, even where I know some people would prefer to hear if somebody's hometown uh, experienced something and that celebrity comes out condoning what's happened and so on. We obviously understand, we know, I mean, they're likely to, to condone. 
I love it when it's channeled in this way mm -hmm. um, to inspire. I, I'm not so I'm not going to go out and look for all the the comments of you know this sick person, this all the nasty things that are said. We know all that, um, but I I just find this kind of thing for me, Karen. I, I gravitate to I, I you know I, I I don't need to know that it's two celebrities necessarily. It is. It's great that they're seeing and and reaching out um, to to somewhere that's familiar and comfortable to them and they have their own personal reasons. Um, but I love just seeing it. anything come to mind for yourself. Well, I mean, this is definitely using your powers for good, not evil. Mm. Um, when it comes to these guys, this isn't preachy. It's when people who use their celebrity to preach at me about something about how I should feel about something. Don't do that. No. <laughs> Excuse me. Um, don't tell me how I should feel. I can make my own choices. So I, I like this sort of thing. Um, but don't tell me how I don't, they shouldn't be telling me how I should feel about things. No, no. And I, I just, I love it in this angle, have some fun because that's the spirit people need. People are scared. People are upset. They've lost people in their community. And somehow you got to put a smile back on your face, even though, because first of all, the people who are gone would want you to, life's got to move on. And, and that's the way it's got to go. And I think that's the way to pick it up. No, it's not going to happen overnight. It's a moment at a football game. Somebody else who had some interesting words as his book was released this week, Henry Winkler, said his parents had a favorite term for him in German. I'll see if I can say it right. Dummerhan, which means dumb dog. He says that his parents were abusive and punished him for being a poor student, which later he learned was because he had dyslexia. They did not want him to become an actor. Well, of course, until he became the Fonz on TV's Happy Days, and everyone in America knew his name. Winkler says that the message he wants to pass on is it is very much possible to succeed um, throughout uh, adversity in life. I cannot believe that Dumahunt, that dumb dog, has done this, accomplished this. And the great thing is, there is always a way. You think you can't do something, but there is a way. Of course, as I mentioned, he's just released his autobiography, Being Henry, The Fonz, and Beyond. Here in our time, we know this guy. We remember, we know how the character, when he came on the show, for example, didn't even have speaking lines. And it always, and, and I think we spoke of this yesterday in our friends conversation, Ramya, with Greg. It's amazing mm. when somebody is chosen to be the vehicle, um, in this case, uh, Ronnie Howard and the others that were there on, on the happy days, um, and Tom Bosley, of course, uh, the father on there. This guy came out of nowhere, Karen, and didn't have a clue that this is his background. Well, I mean, he was no, I mean, Ron Howard was the known name on that for the younger people because he had yeah. starred on um, the Andy Griffith show. But I've heard him tell this story before. He has to be the nicest man in Hollywood. And when you kind of think about that's how he was, you know, spoken to when he was a child, the fact that he has that reputation of being like the nicest person, um, I very rarely heard anybody say anything bad about him. Um, it, it's that I think that says a lot about his character and how he grew up. But yeah, no, he's he's fantastic. I will watch him. His role in Scream is one mm. of my favorite roles he did because I mean he hadn't taken a role that made him look like a bad guy before. Mm. Right, such a good role. Right. I love that. Oh, I love what, that. What was the what was the one he was in where he was high school? Was he the principal and it was a role? I can't think of. He was. It was more. He, of he a, was. You know, he was a teacher in Happy Days. 
during Happy no, Days. There was he something was a else on a movie, and one a movie came oh, out in the nineties. And I, I have to look. I meant to was it was. It was the Scream movies with Nev Campbell. No, it, what I'm thinking of something of else. Yeah, maybe okay, you might be right. Maybe that's but I but I saw him something else I thought in in one. But he just did so many different things when he finally got that break, and I, I think it's amazing. Ramya, you hear this? Do you, does anyone come to mind for you that you know? We we were talking so much about this yesterday about the depression and stuff, but a lot of time people overcoming the negative of their own family, saying, "Look, man, you know, get a grip of what you're going to do." Yeah, a lot of the times it's just um, coming to terms with your own past, right, and your own uh, resilience as well and saying, like, I made it here, like, actually, and you guys should feel uh, the the power of that. The most recent thing that I can point to is the Britney Spears memoir, uh, The Woman in Me, which I'm not going to get too much into, obviously, right now, but it's very similar things. You know, she lived through a lot. She struggled through a lot. Her family put her through a lot, and uh, she had to and still is coming over a lot of that stuff. So it's really that background that you get from people being honest and that admitting that it was a, a long process to come to terms. Yeah, you, you really hate when you hear, it's one thing to try to get a child, Karen, to understand, hey man, this is a challenge, what you wanna do. Are you up for it? That kind of thing. But the out and out say, you're too stupid to do this. Mm -hmm. Don't even bother. Focus on... Some of the most impactful people in your life at the time, which is your family. Yeah, Yeah, and who have hold the cards, especially when this man was a young man. Mm -hmm. I I can't imagine. I can't imagine hearing that over and over again. Um, You know, I was lucky. I had parents who, even when I wasn't good at something, they would say, well, maybe that's not quite for you, but it never felt mean or it was more more helpful or or anything. but yeah, no, it's it's amazing when you see somebody who, like like Ramya said, the most impactful people in your life are putting you down and they end up, you know, having a reputation of being the nicest person because he could have taken that, what his parents did to him and kept doing that to people. Yeah. But he broke the, yeah. he broke well, the cycle. And I think right? for him, he broke the cycle and that's what put him on top, not just to be successful, but to have that reputation because in his mind, I don't want to be that person. I... Mm-hmm don't want to treat people the way my parents treated me, the way I was raised. And I, I love when we run into cases like that. It's uh, pretty amazing. Uh, McGeezer, thanks. Anytime for you, buddy. All right. We'll get you back on the roundtable soon. Karen McGee, of course, our uh, content development specialist, handling things uh, out east and beyond. Sort of like the <laughs> Henry, Henry's book, right? Beyond? <laughs> uh, we were at... Oh. All right, thank you. I almost I almost went beyond my role here as, uh, as host of the roundtable. Go on, Ron. <laughs> We're going to be right back. We're going to wrap up the show, tell you what's coming up on Now with Dave Brown as well. we got a cute little closing moment for you. We'll be back with more of Kelly and Ramya after this short break. Welcome back. We're wrapping up the show here. Kelly and Ramia on AMI. Remember, as I said earlier, that you can check out the show on your favorite podcast platform. Just search for Kelly and Ramia and you'll find us there. We're in segment form. We're in full show form. And we upli- upload daily. I'm getting ahead of myself, that caffeine. Uh, we upload daily because we are here Monday to Friday. And then we're over there on the podcast. So... 
do that. And also, <laughs> 9 a.m. Eastern time, Monday to Friday on AMI-tv, we have our morning show. That is now with Dave Brown. They're available on podcasts as well. And Kelly is going to tell us what they have lined up for the Friday morning edition of the show. News panel time, folks. Joey DeGuta uh, from The Pulse and journalist Michelle McQuig join Dave to talk about some of the big stories of the week, including the politics of the Trudeau government's carbon pricing exemption. Uh, Laura Bain will be on their program tomorrow morning with entertainment. And Karen McKay from the Center for Equitable Library Access will feature the five nominated books for the Governor General's Literary Awards for fiction. So all that exciting. And of course, as usual, I'm now informative. Nice. Very, very nice. Now with Dave Brown, 9 a.m. Eastern Time. Check them out. Uh, I really enjoy all the audiobook talk that's coming across the network. And this is my way of saying check out this week's edition of Audiobook Review. AMI Audiobook oh, Review. Oh, hum. <laughs> because we are talking about, or we're giving you an in-depth review of the uh, Britney Spears memoir. Are you willing or planning to check that out, Kels? No. No. No, I don't think, well, I don't know. I, I, I not mean, even for the tea, a, eh? No, the but I, I mean, I've heard a lot, and it's always fascinating, and I did kind of like our conversation about all that stuff. Mm. Um, but I generally put them too far down on my list, and then by the time, I, oh, I forget about it. Oh, yeah, um, true. But, you know, definitely, I, I you know, it's, it's fascinating, but I've been, followed along for years, so much watching Britney go through everything. Uh, so definitely, yep. it's a possible. There's lots like going I on. I already know a lot, though. Whoa. Yeah. Or you'd want to. It's fine. You don't have to check out Britney Spears, but let's check out this cute little thing that happened. Tinder is responsible for this. So in 2014, there was a Tinder match in one of the most remote places ever, which is Antarctica. And two research scientists uh, matched on this global dating app in the most remote part of the world. A man working at the United States Antarctic McMurdo Station and a woman camping 45-minute helicopter ride away. And they say at the end of this, they're like, what are the chances? I take that as sarcasm because, you know, what are the chances? But um, first of all, the thing I think of is they were on Tinder, question mark? Well, it's so boring out there and vast. <laughs> and then you just tell people, well, I'm just around the corner. I'm not that far yeah, away. I've got a helicopter. Don't worry. A helicopter right away. But Can you imagine that and landing on a person's house? Imagine that. You go to say, well, I'll come visit. I'll meet you at the coffee shop. And the person's in the coffee shop and all they hear is... Right. As the helicopter comes in. Wow. Also, what coffee shop? And I wonder if they were actually bored and looking for people for real or if they were just being scientists and experimental and thinking, I wonder if anyone else is on Tinder, and then they'll put it in um, their research later. I wonder how these people compare to polar bears. <laughs> yeah. Let's see what's coming up on the Friday edition of Kelly and Romeo before we get out of here. There are new smart glasses that play sounds to help people who are blind to find objects. John Beeler is going to tell us more about that on our app update. There's more controversy in the audio book world regarding AI, ladies and gentlemen. Oh, really? Wow, and this is the narrated books I'm talking about. Ryan Huey leads that discussion on the chatty bookshelf. Looking forward to all that and more on the Friday edition of Kelly and Remya. Join us back here. See you later. I've never been a baker by interest or by engagement. I've baked, yes, and I've enjoyed baking, mostly because friends have said, let's do this 
baking thing together. And I've had uh, good experiences, actually. Cookies have turned out well, cheesecake. I've even one time made a very, very good batch of cinnamon rolls that I was extremely proud of, mostly because it took an entire day for this thing to be uh, set up, prepared. I'm not even, you see, I don't even know the right word. For the dough to rise, essentially, and uh, not at all enough time for the thing to be devoured. But as I said, I love it. I loved baked goods. I love pastries, especially freshly baked. And I have definitely uh, made my friends group more and more lean towards who can bake and who can't. And the bakers are in my top, you know, five friends. But for me, I can't understand the patience of it. I definitely know I don't have the patience for it. And uh, usually I'll make one batch of cookies a year and be proud of it for the remaining 364 days because that's how non-often I break. Bake. Hi, I'm Stephen Scott. Join me every day for Double Tap. It's a show where we occasionally talk about technology for blind and partially sighted people. You'll find us wherever you get your podcasts.